and welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm your host, Dave, and today I am here with Lynn Langett. Lynn is a cloud architect and a teacher and someone I've known for a while. She is incredibly smart and incredibly approachable for these, these topics. She's done, oh gosh, how many, like 30 plus technical courses now, Lynn. She's been able to explain to developers all of the different services that we have at AWS around data. So today we're going to talk about AWS data services. Lynn, thank you for coming to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about your journey. Um, we Last we were talking, I remember being in a room and we were talking about Windows Phone and <laughs> developers and C Sharp and .NET and the cloud, everyone was talking about, uh, gosh, it must've just been storage and a little bit of compute back then, right? It was like S3, EC2, this is like 2008 uh, or so. And how did that journey take you uh, to where you are now and owning your own business in the cloud? Yeah, so I'm a self-taught mid-career technologist. I had a career in business before I pivoted to technology. Um, and I started as a technical trainer and then got a job at Microsoft way back when. Um, and I discovered that in addition to networking, I had a love of databases. I love data and databases from way back when. Uh, it was like a religious experience when I learned SQL Server. In fact, so much so that I wrote three books on it. So uh, I was working along and uh, cloud came. It was, uh, remember Red Dog? Remember the red shoes? At Microsoft? Yeah. Yeah, yes. when Azure first came. So the cloud came about, and uh, of course, I discovered um, S3, because that was really one of the first uh, services. And yeah. I, was just, I was just fascinated. I was like, what? How does this, what? What? Right. Globally scalable? This, what? <laughs> and then at the same time, because um, it was in California, it was the time of the Hadoop hype. And so um, I'm a pretty independent That's gal. Right. And even though I had a really good time at Microsoft, I decided I wanted to go on my own. And so when I left, the first thing I did as a Microsoft person was go to the East Coast, go to New Jersey, take a five-day class in Hadoop on Linux and Java. Wow, that was eye-opening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm a good student. And even though the first day I could, you know, barely do an LS because I, you know, was from the Windows world, by yeah. Friday, I was running a machine learning job because I follow instructions. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, first off, shout out to New Jersey. I was born and raised <laughs> at the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still on the East Coast. I managed to get about two hours outside of uh, Jersey Shore now in Pennsylvania. Um, I had that same experience. Like, you know, I had grown up on Commodore computers and then moved to the PC and Windows. And I had done everything, you know, starting with Visual Basic and then C Sharp and Visual Studio. And it was actually uh, AWS was my first exposure to that. And I remember just it, it was the Apache. They, they called it what did they call it? Uh, Lamp. Right, yep. Linux, uh, Apache, mm -hmm. yep. uh, MySQL, and PHP, and I was like, "What is this stuff?" You know, and that's incredible. So you landed a machine learning job within like a, a two weeks after getting all ramped up and taking what you were already doing. Well, to be clear, I was learning, so I was learning right. Hadoop, and so um, it was I was running a tutorial. My first jobs when I left Microsoft 
were to train in very traditional data situations, so data warehousing. Um, right, but, right. but because I wanted to learn more about Hadoop, um, I immediately discovered the next Amazon service, EC2, and I was one of those EC2 is my is my second laptop gals from way right. back when because I was a Windows person and you know I wanted ease and so S3 EC2 those were my services and um, you know I was trying to figure out how to get Hadoop working because I didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> So when services like EMR, you know, managed to dupe came, it was again, yet another, I I mean, I really understood the reason for that because I, you know, I guess I'm just ridiculously optimistic about my ability to do things, which is, you know, a blessing and a curse. You know, I was trying to set up Hadoop clusters on EC2 before it was possible, I think. Right, right. (laughs) Well, you have a love of technology, you know, and I, um, I've learned as, as time goes by, like sometimes I'll have those blinders on. I see the new thing. Oh, and this is going to solve so many problems. And then it winds up, you know, in the long run, uh, it may not have solved everything that I thought. Um, and and so you, you, you start training, you start creating all this, these courses and it kind of grows out of that. And I know you've, you've, I saw your name come up with the hero stuff with, bioinformatics and some like you're working on solving some real world problems, right? Uh, within that space using uh, AWS data services and, and, and the power of the cloud, right? Yeah. So when my consultancy first started, it was, you know, enterprise training, right? And so those are the fintechs and the ad techs because that's who adopts new technologies first because they have money. And so yeah. um, they were early adopters of the cloud trying to get cloud economies. And so professionally, I moved into, you know, building POCs and helping technology advise for a lot of fintechs, because frankly, you make a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah. so I was doing that. And it kind of got me in the front of terms of cloud, because they have, you know, they, they have their latency requirements, for example, like they want every, everything almost instantaneous, because time's money, right? right? So I was able to then work with some of the newest services um, and, you know, build, work with teams to build um, cloud native data pipelines to move from, you know, server-based data warehouses, which is a tip, one example, to cloud native yep. data processing pipelines. And then when serverless came, of course, that was another boom, mic drop, right? So how yeah. can we integrate, you know, serverless? I mean, I, I literally remember I was at reInvent when Lambda was introduced and I was in the audience and I just started open my console and started doing it while they were demoing it. Cause I realized what it was going to do. And yeah. um, so anyway, so into bioinformatics. So about four or five years ago, five years ago now, my best friend got cancer and she's okay, oh, no. but, but she was unable to get on an immunotherapy trial. And I knew um, cause my daughter at that time was um, studying and she was studying um, uh, uh, trials. And she said, she was at the university and she said, uh, mom, these people don't use the cloud. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? They don't use the cloud for their data pipelines. And right. so, um, I had done a little bit of work in, in, uh, at that time I lived in California in San Diego with some of the bioinformatics. And I realized that they really kind of don't. And so I went to one of my cloud providers and I said, um, I need to do something here. Cause I know, you know, I've got these FinTech patterns. And so I ended up doing all this work in Australia um, with a group and built one of the first data lakes, um, actually on Amazon. 
back in 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah, I published yeah. the work. It's on Medium. So, and we, uh, we, it was about the time that Spark could be controlled by Kubernetes. It was that year when you right. didn't have to use Yarn anymore. And so we moved from, you know, EMR, because it was a Spark thing, to a data lake. And we took a process that on-prem was 500 hours. In EMR, it was some hours, like 10. And right. on the data lake, it was like 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that pretty much launched my bioinformatics career. Because um, bioinformatics at that time, you know, was like you SSH into the HPC cluster, right? And you wait yeah. on the queue. And I was like, no, you don't because people are not getting the treatment they should deserve. And exactly. so I, I just kind of went for it. And so I've been working with bioinformatics ever since. That's so cool. I, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put a link to that Medium article too. I'm going to uh, keep a reminder here. So on, on that topic, so approaching data, and you've mentioned a couple things there, and, and why don't we baseline it for listeners that maybe don't know, you talked about data pipelines and you talked about data warehouses and you talked about data lakes. And so for developers who maybe they've touched Lambda and they've done some file storage like S with S3 or maybe EFS, how would you define all of these data services and, and how to approach uh, a solution? Yeah. So here's the deal. I had to educate myself, right? Because I came out of, there was two. There was basically relational database data warehouse. OLTP right. transactions, OLAP analytical, right? And then yep. you have all of a sudden S3 and you have all these, you know, Hadoop services and Spark service. Like how, what do you do? And so I, 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 my, my technical life is around this principle, what I call um, learn, build, teach. So I have to learn it myself first. And I usually learn it by building something. And then I feel compelled to teach it. And so this has resulted in um, many, many courses on the LinkedIn learning platform, like 30. Um, I think 15 of them are Amazon wow. data services. And because the cloud moves so quickly, I, I wanted to find a way around um, having to go and update the courses manually. And so what I did for Amazon data services is I created one big GitHub repo. And it was kind of for myself. And what it is, it's a hello world for almost every Amazon data service, because as I'm trying to use them, trying to show customers or whatever, your docs are great, okay, but I wanted one place for me with sample data, where I could be right. like, okay, I need to spin up Redshift. Okay, I want to do Aurora serverless or Redshift serverless, or I want to do this. And I, I want this all in one place. And so one of the reasons I'm excited to be on this podcast is I've had a lot of people tell me that this has been helpful to them. And I really, you know, want to be a helpful person. So I, I hope, and this is all in GitHub, it's all open source. It's called, yeah. it's called Hello AWS Data Services um, under my name. And you can put the link in. Yeah. But yeah, people have told me that it's very helpful. And I use it myself. I update it constantly. I love it. And I, and I was just checking it out. It's, it's especially because developers are already in Git and you can just pull everything down and it's continually updated. So we know S3, um, we're, we're talking relational data. How do we separate out then what is a data warehouse? What is a data lake and SQL, no SQL? How does that all fit into everything? Yeah, so there's too many, it's so many choices, man. So I read this. <laughs> I, I read this book. Too many choices in a way. I read this book that was really helpful. It's called um, okay. Seven Seven Databases in Seven Weeks, and um, the the TLDR of it is you want you have the option now for purpose built databases, 
And the trick is to use just as many as you need, not too many, not too few, right? Like right. in some scenarios, you need, you know, RDS, you need MySQL or some other relational thing on RDS. And then you need Redshift, you need a data warehouse, and you're done. You know, just because we have 67 choices doesn't mean you have to use them, right? right? So you have to match them to what is your business need. And that would be like, I don't know, like an e-commerce or some transactional, when there's, when the, the transactional part of your business. However, as we get more computation in our world, particularly from IoT and devices, we get more event style data. So JSON data, so semi-structured yep. data. And we don't want to pay to keep that in a transactionally consistent environment. That doesn't make sense, right? So that's that whole world of NoSQL. Well, then you have five different categories of NoSQL databases. You have key value and you have wide column and you have, so how do you decide what for what, right? So right. you need to figure out from a pattern standpoint, which type of data store you need. And the best way to do that on a cloud vendor um, Amazon, obviously, in this case, is a try it out. For example, if you have JSON semi-structured data, you guys have DocumentDB and you have DynamoDB. And DocumentDB, of course, is native JSON, but DynamoDB supports it. So when do you use which one? Well, it depends. It depends right. on what? It depends on what you're going to do with it. Well, how are you going to figure that out? You're going to get some of your data and you have to de-anonymous, you have to make it anonymous. That's really, really, really important. And people don't do that. Um, if it's customer data, please make it anonymous. And then you have to try it out and you have right. to do a head for head, right? And a thing, for example, in NoSQL that I see developers underestimate all the time is it's super easy to put data in. Yay, fantastic. But it's not super easy to get data out because you don't have SQL query capability. Right. right. You have proprietary query depends on the type of NoSQL store. So, you know, I tell you from a pragmatic point, set it up, put data in and take it out. And if you want to be really good, do it at scale because scaling is impacted differently depending on the data store. Right. And how does a cost factor into that with scaling? Well, there's two costs at least. One cost is the physical cost of the service that you pay to Amazon. And it's a build versus buy. Like right. I can make a really, really simple example. If you're a SQL server on-prem person, and you're going to move to the cloud, you can do IaaS. So you can do EC2 and install SQL server and set up the high availability yourself. The operative word there is you. Or you can go to RDS and you can work at a PaaS level or platform, and so you just access at the console. You do not SSH into the machines, and things like HA are set up for you, and that costs more. It costs more to yeah. Amazon, but it costs less in your labor time. Or yeah. if you want to be like the cool kid, if the scenario fits, if your data does not need to be tabular, you can put it into S3 and use a SQL query engine like Athena, or it's one of the other serverless ones, and pay by the query. Yeah, I, there's so Athena, you can do queries across data lakes and and other things too, right? It's it's yep. looking yep. at yep. and what has been your experience with that? Of like, how is that different from somebody who's only done SQL queries? 
Well, you know, again, the SQL semantics are ANSI compliant, but not, but not ANSI complete, right? And that's very important because it's not a relational database. The thing that I think is, is helpful for me that might be useful for your users is to think about the need for transactions. Because, right. um, you know, I'm a business person, right, from my background, right? And yeah. data is money, right? Data is the oil. So if you need yeah. transactions, use the relational database. Again, one of the things that a pattern that I've had over my architect career is some startup will start with some NoSQL database because, you know, it's super easy. You can just throw anything in there. You don't, you don't know the schema because you don't know your business because you're a startup. And so it's really flexible. You don't have to define tables. Right. Well, but they make the mistake of maybe they are e-commerce and they put all their data in there and they think they can manually write a transaction layer over it. Well, no, you can't. Transactions in databases and distributed databases is a hard problem that has been solved by relational databases. So then you need two databases. So you need to yep. partition. You need your, your money data in MySQL, and then you right. can put your behavioral data um, in you know, a NoSQL store. But how to partition is um, a somewhat solved problem. I wouldn't say wholly. I mean, one of, the, one of the problems is they still don't teach the kids in university anything about data. Not a darn thing. I hire apprentices that are graduating out of CS programs and they just, they're, they know how to do algorithms. They know how to do, you know, right. merge sorts and stuff like that. And they have like no idea. So they're, what they come out of school thinking is if there's a computational problem, they will write code to solve it. And Frank, and that causes more problems and embarrassment in our industry than I care to comment on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, and you're just, you're making me remember, like, I didn't even know what an acid transaction and that whole philosophy until mm -hmm. I was working on websites paid professionally after college. And that's when I discovered SQL Server. It was a uh, Microsoft SQL Server 6.5. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing T-SQL and realizing that the entire scalability and, uh, power of the entire website was SQL queries. And it was like developers, myself included, we could go in and change our SQL queries differently than changing code because pushing out an ISAPI filter or something like that, the change control at the time, you know, you had development staging and production. It was like, oh no, no. But if you sent an admin a SQL query and they could just see the couple text lines, they'd update that in the database and you could, you know, tenfold increased performance of getting customer record sets. And so some of the things that you're saying there with pulling out two databases of having your customer data, but then also having analytics, when you're looking at a warehouse and a data lake, is that common for customers to have these multiple different uh, sets of data and services in order to do analytics on one and in order to store and have transactional within the other? Well, again, I, I think that, um, you know, the business value of data lakes and now data lake houses is um, still to be proved out. Um, looks like we have a new person joining, so I'll pause for a minute here. Hi, I'm just sneaking in. <laughs> we uh, Dave can make it smooth throughout the podcast, but I just wanted to join in and say hi and, and see if I could contribute at all. Of course. Um, so we're just jibing around understanding the different data services. Love it. So another issue that drives uh, my customers towards more traditional data solutions is security. Um, although you guys are adding 
I think a very much needed layer of security with Lakehouse, um, I think called Foundation or Lakehouse is a set of services on top of, of Data Lake. I mean, you know, securing a data lake is hard. It's a hard, hard problem. Um, and securing data is something that I see done incorrectly more often than, than correctly, unfortunately. And so um, for high security data, again, just like transactional data, I'll say just use a relational database um, for that part uh, because right. that is going to be a better fit. Um, so it's more of a situation with the value of lakes and lake houses that they're an addition rather than a replacement. And customers don't want to hear that because they want to, you know, they want to rip out their databases and be cool like that and have the big data lake. And, you know, um, the, the joke among us consultants is that's, that's not a data lake, that's a data swamp. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. Um, what makes it difficult to secure a data lake exactly? Well, the, um, the permission model around, um, object stores has never been seen as a um, first level technical job for some reason, as long as I have been out in, in, in the cloud world. Um, I joke that the reason I am an AWS data hero is because I made a bunch of YouTube videos about how to use S3. You know, uh, all the other data heroes like built all these amazing distributed services, but you know what, in kind of 10 years in, I can kind of see why you gave me that award. Because, um, you know, I, one of the first things I do when I go to an existing cloud customer is I say, explain to me your security of buckets. And I can judge their cloud fluency from that one question oh, wow. in such a profound way. You know, do, do they use tags? Do they have policies that are, you know, do they restrict individual buckets to users? Or do they just give everybody, you know, um, you know do everything on every bucket? Do they have multiple cloud environments? Do they dev and prod? Do they de-identify their data? Do they use the services like Macy to make sure that they don't have personally identifiable data mm. in, in buckets, right? Um, and it's just still a new paradigm. That's amazing. What is Macy just for our listeners? Oh, Macy is a, one of your services that um, <laughs> there's a cost to it. Um, okay, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an AWS service that I know obviously a ton about. And um, okay, what does it do exactly? So, so it allows you to configure a scanning of data in various locations, including S3, to identify it, different types of information. And it's set up with a set of um, uh, filters that looks for things like social security numbers, birth dates that are unencrypted. But you can you can put anything in there. Um, super powerful service, uh, and I think very underutilized. Clearly, I've never I've literally never heard of it, and I think that's phenomenal. So thank you, fantastic. Um, how would developers get started with this type of thing? Well, again, because I have been on this journey learning, um, I made all these courses on LinkedIn Learning, as I mentioned previously, and I have an associated repo called. Um, Hello AWS Data Services, where I have sample data, scripts, and um, kind of like my study notes so that uh, I can quickly set up an example from each and every one of the services that I've worked with. That's phenomenal. Do you find that there are like common pitfalls that people new to this space fall into or what are the sort of early mistakes you see people make? 
Well, it kind of falls in the, um, the experience. So the enterprise people are too conservative. You know, they don't want to yeah. use anything that's serverless because it freaks them out because they're used to controlling servers. And you can really save a lot of money that way. Um, and the startup people are too cavalier. They want to use every shiny new thing and they don't want to use relational databases. Again, I was mentioning earlier that I, as a, when I was on the West Coast, I'd get called into these startups and their data would be so messed up because they were using um, you know, something that wasn't transactionally consistent or didn't have constraints on it. And they just had all kinds of junk data in there and you know, they would become successful and they were like, oh no, our data is trash. I'm like, yeah, because you didn't use a relational database, dummy. I mean, yeah. I didn't say it that way, right. but you know what I mean. <laughs> it would have been more fun if you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a, a quick question, a quick question for you. Like you just made me think from just an organizational team perspective, the people that are creating these data structures, is it the developer teams? Obviously in a startup, everyone kind of does everything, but have you seen success where there's almost, you know, there's a data architect. There's someone that's ensuring that it doesn't turn into that swamp. Is that, a, is that like a problem for consistently within companies because there's no ownership around that? It kind of falls in these different pockets. Yeah, again, I can look at the cloud fluency of a company to see who sits where. So the more cloud fluent is when you have um, people who write business code, you know, whether it's like Java or Node or whatever, who sit next to the DevOps people who are writing infrastructure code. Um, and if you have that, then you're going to have a more cloud fluent kind of environment and they're going to develop it together. Um, I'm a big believer that um, new functionality needs to be designed data first. It's probably my bias, but, um, and I don't see a lot of developers doing that. I see a lot of developers starting code first and then, oh, I forgot about this. Oh, I don't know about this. Oh, da 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 da. So, you know, ideally you have not only the DevOps and developers, but you have a subject matter expert um, representing the customer sitting there when you're designing. That's like the, the most cloud fluent of teams. But unfortunately, that's the exception rather than the rule. That makes sense. Phenomenal. Well, what are you excited about? Like, what's what's coming up um, in the serverless space or the security space that's, that you're excited about? Well, I, I really watching, you know, um, Lake House um, at Amazon. Um, and I'm also interested in the specialty um, lakes because I think that helps customers, uh, the fintech and the um, health lake, the fire store, because, um, you know, lake is new, lake is hard. And so the more that we can buy from the vendor, that's the pragmatic, that's interesting to me. Also specialty databases that um, fit with my customers. I happen to have a customer whose business is time. And so I've spent some time with TimeStream. And it's been really yeah. interesting to take a look at the augmentation to the SQL language, which I'm a big fan of. You can make SQL more usable rather than writing a NoSQL layer. So basically we looked at TimeStream versus Dynamo. And where we're landing is because of some of the things that were added to TimeStream SQL, like interpolation, which basically fills in um, missing events uh, using complex math. Um, and it really kind of fits the scenario. So we're building a POC on TimeStream. And then the last one that I have to get in there because yes. I, always, I always have to be on the cutting edge is um, I just released a course on quantum. Amazing. Um, cloud quantum, yeah. And so um, I'm really, really 
trying to understand where QPUs can have an impact for my bioinformatics customers. Um, there is some research out now that in some, it was actually around COVID lung scans. It was interesting that a QCNN was um, both faster, um, so a convolutional neural network with QPUs, um, and more accurate than one with GPUs. That's and so I was like, this is, this is important. I need to pay attention. So bracket. So I'm getting into bracket. That is, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we, you have to come back and just talk about quantum. I think that would be fantastic. I love it. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Twitter. Okay. So I have a, I have an easy Twitter name. Um, also I have lots of articles on medium. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure listening to you and, and just learning about this. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Lynn.